Thank you for tuning in to the East Sonali Baptist Church podcast, where you will hear messages that are challenging to you in your walk with Jesus every week. We update our podcast weekly with new messages from Dr. Richard Sego. And now, Dr. Richard Sego. couple of weeks we've spent time on just simply the introduction to the book of Philippians and now we really start to get into the heart of the letter and we'll quickly notice the deep love and appreciation that Paul has for this church and it'd be my prayer that at the near the end of my ministry that I'd be able to look back over the places that I've served and, and to be able to have such fond memories of the people that God has placed in my life that comprise those various churches. But this church in particular brought the aged apostle a a tremendous amount of joy. And he says in this passage that the people of the Philippian church were on his mind and they were in his heart. And a lot of us would probably say that the only place that a lot of other Christians are are on our nerves. I get that. As one man said, to love the whole world for one, or for me, is no chore. My only real problem is the man next door. I pray, though, that we would all have the richness of fellowship that this church had. And I found this to be a most encouraging passage, and I think that you will, too. And I'm going to be sharing a message tonight entitled, People Who Bring Joy. People Who Bring Joy. Would you stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read it? Philippians 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to thank this all of, of you all, Because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Those words there remind us that Paul is imprisoned as he's writing this letter. Then just verse 8. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you, all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this very personal note that we have from Paul to the Philippian church. It reminds us of the kind of relationship that can be had in the body of Christ between pastor and people and just between disciples in general. And God, I pray that we would achieve that kind, by your grace, we would achieve that kind of unity, fellowship of the gospel here at Easton Ali as well. Lord, bless us tonight through the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you can be seated. For those of you who are very, very faithful note takers, um, some of the tech team let me know that there was a, a glitch with some computer stuff tonight, so the outline and all like that won't be um, on the screen. So you're just going to have to pay a little bit closer attention and I know that I'm a fast talker sometimes you're going to have to be a fast listener um, to be able to take some notes but if you miss something um, well I'll pray for you but if you miss something no seriously send me an email this week I'll try to fill in anything that you might have 
missed. But let me say this. I need people in my life who bring joy. But you know what else? I want to be the kind of person in somebody else's life that also brings joy. So from this passage, we can learn how to have and how to be people that bring joy. I want us to notice the exuberance that Paul has as he expresses his love and concern for this church. And then as we look at that, we need to ask the question, why? Why was it that these people, this Philippian church, brought such joy to the life of the Apostle Paul? What was it about these people that brought him that kind of satisfaction? And what was it about them that engendered this kind of affection that he had for this, this kind of church? And when we answer that question, we'll find our greatest application from this text. So, first of all, notice with me, if you will, here just the exuberance that Paul has about this church. Uh, Paul was so excited about this church. Even though he's in prison, and even though he's, he's separated from them physically, they still seem to water his life with, with so much joy. He, he says in verse 3, he sp- speaks about every remembrance that he has about them. In other words, he says, I thank my God for you every time I think about you. Every time God brings you to mind as I'm in these chains and in these bonds, every time that you cross across the frontal cortex of my brain, every time that happens, I am thanking God for you. Uh, as Paul is in prison, he, he could just think of these people, and even there in those adverse circumstances, he could experience joy as he recalled his times and his fellowship with these dear people. Do you have anybody like that in your life, and are you that person for somebody else? He also mentions here in verse 4 that every prayer, he said, I'm praying for you. Now look, notice that he says, every time that I pray, I am praying for you. It was not a burden for Paul to do this. He, he did it with joy. He did it consistency, as he says, always and in every prayer. This teaches, <clears throat> excuse me, this teaches us a lot about the unselfishness of prayer. We are to be praying for others uh, sacrificially. Sometimes people will say, I want to be able to pray for longer periods of time. If you will get committed to praying for other people, your prayer time can become unlimited in its duration. It will become fresh. It will become invigorated. And you will see God do some great things in other people's life. Don't be like the man who prays, God bless me, my wife, my son John and his wife, us four, and no more. Or give me this, give me that, do it quickly, and that's that. I mean, we cannot... Expect to be disciples of Jesus Christ with, with a prayer life of that kind of depth or, or, or that shallow, I should say. Uh, one thing that the church really lacks today, I think, is real, genuine intercessors. Those who go before God. Those who stand in the breach. Those who stand in the gap. So I'm encouraging tonight, based on the example that Paul sets, to, to be a person who prays on behalf of others. I I need people in my life who pray for me, and I want to be that person for somebody else. So when Paul thought about these people, he would just bubble over with excitement and joy in his life. When he prayed for them, he did so with joy. But notice not only his exuberance for them, but notice also his expression of love 
for them. Um, Evidently, Paul was not one of those men who was afraid to express his feelings. That the book of Philippians is easily Paul's most personal letter of all the letters that he wrote in the New Testament. Um, as he addresses them, you can, I think, with, with just a quick glance, with even a cursory approach to the Scripture, which I would never encourage, but even with just a cursory approach to Scripture, you can easily pick up on the depth of affection that Paul has for these people. Uh, Paul is not so inhibited as to be unwilling to express how he feels for them. He had learned the value of relationships and his relationships were more important than his ego or his masculinity or any of those things. So we notice in his words for verse 7, uh, for instance, as Paul says this, he says, I have you in my heart. Verse 8, he says, I long for you with all affection. Paul genuinely loved the people in this church and he let them know it. We need that. We need that in the body of Christ. We, we need to express our love for one another. We, we need for sure to express it to our spouse. We, we need to express it to our church. We need it uh, from brother to brother. We need it from sister to sister. We need it from brothers in Christ to sisters in Christ. Uh, we need it from pastor to people, from people to pastor. We need to let each other know that they are in our hearts that we long for them with a Christ-like affection. Every person needs close relationships that bring joy, hence the body of Christ. God did not design us, save us, redeem us to live on an island. He designed the body of Christ for us and for us uh, the body of Christ. In physics, the second law of thermodynamics is known as the law of entropy. And it essentially says that things that are isolated and left to themselves will move toward deterioration. Have you ever just noticed, for instance, how quickly a home that is abandoned begins to deteriorate? You've seen that dynamic before, right? By the way, this is one of the true setbacks uh, against the theory of evolution. You see, things that are left to themselves, they do not evolve upward, they evolve downward. They evolve backwards. This is true in our lives. We need people. If we're isolated and left alone, we will deteriorate. That's the ultimate punishment of hell. It is being cut off from, from people and, and ultimately from the presence of God. And people that are lost and undone without Christ often have a misunderstanding about what hell is going to be like. They think it's just going to be one big party. Waylon, Willie, and the boys are going to be there. And it's just going to be one big party. It's going to be great. No, it's about darkness. It's about isolation. It's about the breaking of relationships and ultimately, of course, being cut off from the presence of the living God. We all need people in our lives and we need to be that kind of person for other people. But there's a million dollar question here, I think. Why did the people in this church Bring Paul so much joy. We've looked at the first couple verses. We looked at the last couple verses. And the answer to our question is kind of crunched in the middle there. All right. Was what we see from Paul, was it just mushy 
emotion? Or were there some concrete reasons as to why this church brought Paul the joy that it did? I think we discover that there are some very objective, tangible reasons why Paul, why Paul had joy over this church. And it was what had happened in the past. It was what was happening in the present. And it's what Paul knew to be happening in the future. But before we really tackle those three dynamics, let me say that here's the overarching reason that these people brought such joy to Paul. And he says it in verse 5. He said it is for their involvement and he called it this, in the fellowship of the gospel. The fellowship of the gospel. When we speak of fellowship, we often mean little more than camaraderie or the sharing of good times. But in the New Testament, it means so much more than that. Because these people were not just uniting on a social level or on things shared in common. Now, think about what we know about this church from the very first message that I preached. It was comprised of a businesswoman named Lydia. Remember Acts chapter 16, she comes to Christ. She's at a, at a prayer meeting praying to God, but she doesn't know about the gospel and a relationship with Jesus Christ to get to God. It's also comprised of an old rough, around-the-edges Roman prison guard. Because you see, Paul was in prison in Philippi, which was a Roman precinct. And, and, and therefore, here's this guard that comes to Christ. Lydia's entourage comes to Christ. The Bible says this prison guard and his uh, family ends up getting saved. And there's also a clairvoyant in that story if you go back and, and study. And most scholars believe that she is also one of those um, who has come to Christ. And Lord knows who else. So is this the basis then for the fellowship that Paul experiences with these people? Because he, what is Paul? He's an intellectual. He, he's been educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He, I mean, he has a world-class education. He, he is a guy that can go into the Areopagus in Greece and he can debate with all the philosophers there and hold his own. So you have this businesswoman, you have this old rough prison guard, you have, you have this person that's been evolved, involved in essentially the occult, and then you have the Apostle Paul who is an intellectual, and here's the Apostle Paul saying, I have so much affection and love and fellowship with you guys. So I don't think they're coming together on a social level, are they? They're diverse. So many churches define, let me quote, a target group. And they try to reach a certain type of person based on the premise that the church has to be comprised of people who have like interests in order to have fellowship. That is not true. We do not come together on a social level only, but on a commitment to the truths of the gospel and its advancement. The heart of true fellowship is conformity to a true vision and that true vision is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul thanked God for these people because from the very first moment of their salvation, they rolled up their sleeves and they got involved in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know why some people will come into the church and they'll, they'll kind of feel detached, they won't ever seem to get connected. One of the reasons they don't feel a part of the church, let me tell you why. It's because they have no fellowship in the gospel 
If you're helping the church, assisting the church, involved in the church, advancing the gospel, making disciples that make disciples, you'll get connected and you'll find fellowship on levels that you've never known it before. What must tie us together as Christians is this passion for the gospel. Nothing else is strong, listen to me, nothing else is strong enough to hold us together considering the extraordinary diversity of the people that constitute most churches and ours is no example. Just take in our congregation. You got Tennessee volunteers. Probably a few secret closet Vanderbilt Commodores. Maybe a few MTSU guys and gals. And then you got me, the enemy of all enemies, planted right here with you. You got men and women and young and old, blue collar, white collar, no collar, homesteaders, transplants, healthy, ill, fit and flabby, different incomes, different education, different races, different personalities. I mean, you may think right out here in Riceville, Tennessee, that no, everybody drives a tractor, everybody lives on a farm, everybody does this, that, works down at the plant. No, we're very diverse, aren't we? There's people from all over the country right here. I, I met a couple this morning. They're back tonight. I don't know how God does these things, but they are from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I was so excited. We got a couple sitting right back here that moved in here from Colorado. Here a few months ago. There's, there's people from everywhere. From all kinds of varying backgrounds. There's different skin skin colors in our church, different ethnic ethnicities and ethnic backgrounds and all those kind of things. What is it that's going to be able to bring us all together? The, in all likelihood, there's not social dynamics for every person in this church to connect, but there is the dynamic of fellowship in the gospel. We don't all have to enjoy the same things. We don't all have to have the same likes and dislikes to be connected. We are connected by the fabric, the unbreakable fabric of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing just how much fellowship I find myself having sometimes with people that I really don't have any other thing in common with other than the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can have sweet, sweet fellowship. I, I've been in other countries where there's language barriers and, and, and they have... None of the social construct that I'm accustomed to here as an American. We don't speak the same language, and yet there's sweet fellowship because there's a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that Paul shared memorable moments just hanging out, you know, with the people at the Philippian church, but his joy really came because they had shared in his gospel. And he says this, from the first day until now. So now let's talk about the chronology of this, okay? The past, the present, and the future. He says in verse 5, he mentions the, the past. He says that we've had fellowship in the gospel from the first day. This speaks of the past when they got saved as an example. We know that Lydia opened up her home to... The mission team, so that they could stay in Philippi, they could stay there in the city and keep on evangelizing. 
and helping to build the early foundation for the Philippian church. The Philippian jailer cared for their wounds. Paul and Silas, remember the story? Um, Gave them food to eat. An investment in Paul was an investment in eternity and an investment in the gospel. He moves on to the present. He said, from the first day until now. They, they began by being involved in the advancement of the gospel, and they continued to do so. And even though they're now separated by distance, they're still involved. As we get over to chapter 4, verse 16, we find out there that the Philippian church had sent aid to Paul while he was in Thessalonica so that he could keep preaching the gospel. We get down in chapter 4, verse 18, just two verses later. They sent Epaphroditus to check on Paul while he's in prison, sent him, some, sent him some things that he needed, some things that he desired. You know what? If you want people in your life that bring joy and do these kind of things for you, if you want to be a person who gives joy, then get involved somehow in the furtherance of the gospel. It's all the difference in the world. He looked at the past and he looked at the present, but then get this. He, he also looking at the future. And, of course, that's verse, verse 6. He who, that's one of the great verses of Scripture, by the way, one of the great uh, cornerstone verses of sanctification. He says, he who began a good work in you is going to carry it on until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, till you see Jesus, either through death or, or rapture of the church. Paul had joy over these people because he recognized and, and could, he could see what God was doing in their life. That they were, they were already a blessing to him. And God wasn't even finished with them yet. The word complete, he says that, that, that God will carry out what he's working in your life until you are complete. It's the word epitelio in the Greek. It means to accomplish, perfect, fill up, or to finish. God is not finished with you, dear friends. God is not finished with me. He will complete us. You are not the finished product yet. You and I are under construction for every person that is truly regenerate. Without exception, God will complete His work of sanctification in them. And this just really gave Paul joy to think that these people were only going to get better. I have high expectations for you. And hopefully, you have high expectations for me. You're only going to get better. And I'm only going to get better. As long as we keep ourselves in the paths of grace, taking advantage of the spiritual disciplines, so that God can move us along. I remember as a kid, growing up, watching PBS that that painter his name was bob ross he had the afro y'all know who i'm talking about yeah he was referred to as the happy painter because you remember he would paint happy trees and happy mountains everything was and he had this real soothing cadence to his voice y'all remember who i'm talking about right well i mean i we used to watch that all the time and he he would 
he, he would purposely, I think, paint on the canvas in a unique way. He, he wouldn't start, you know, over here with just a tree, but he would make these just broad strokes all over the canvas. That's the way he would start. And it would, it would just slowly start taking shape until it just kind of wound up being this lovely masterpiece in the end. He painted a lot of, you know, of, of nature type scenes, mountains and, and creeks and rivers and stuff like that. Well, this is what God is doing in your life. He's drawing you one stroke at a time. He's, he's shaping you and forming you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible refers to this process as sanctification. I think we probably all subscribe to progressive sanctification. I do. We are progressively by grace, becoming more and more like the Son of God. Think about it like this. When, what God does for us is salvation. What God does in us is sanctification. And what God does through us is service. We are bad to start things and not finish them. Part of it is human nature. But God never starts something that He doesn't finish. Ever. Let me, let me define, I just tried to write out a simple definition for sanctification. It can be described like this. It is the process whereby you become more and more separated from sin and you become more and more identified in and representative of Jesus Christ. The scripture, I think, bears out the process of sanctification. Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Every person that God saves, listen to me, God sanctifies. You got somebody that claims to know Jesus. Somewhere along the way, they walked an aisle, they signed a card, they got dunked into the baptistry. It's 40 years later and they don't look an ounce more like Jesus than they did the day that they say they made their profession. You don't have an example there of somehow the process of sanctification never taking effect. You have, a process, you have something there where regeneration never took effect. I was reading something by John MacArthur recently, and he said, our problem is we try to clean up the back end when what we need to do is go back to the front end and make sure that regeneration is actually taking place, and then we'll see sanctification. How does this process take place? In verse 7, Paul says this. He says, it's right for me to think this of you. It's right for me to think that something's happening in your life, you're being changed. In other words, what's Paul saying? He's saying, I'm seeing some things here. Sanctification is visible. You, you can see transformation taking place in, in people's lives, even in little children. I'm telling you, it's not that you see the separation of sin as much in the child as you do just the, the, the imputation of the graces of God in their life as they start to reflect more and more of the attitude of, of Christ. So, But here's what I want to say. Sanctification is a work of God, it's, it's a work of grace, but there, there's a balance between what God does and what we partner with Him in doing in terms of submitting to His process of sanctification. In other words, I'd say you, you must put yourself in a position 
for God to do something in you, to change you, to transform you, etc. Let me show you what I mean from the reverse angle. Here would be the reverse angle. Uh, Romans 13, 14. Uh, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Provision. This is a warning. Paul says make no provision for the flesh. So when we think about provision, we, we think, you know, providing, right? In other words, don't provide your flesh an avenue for sin. So, so, so you've got somebody that's, that's, that's dealing with internet pornography, then the computer or the phone might be a provision for them to indulge in flesh. So that's something that they, they don't need in their life. So on the flip side of that, I've said it from a reverse angle, think about provisions in terms of your sanctification. How can you put yourself in the pathway? How can you provide for your own sanctification? I'm, I'm reading a book right now called The Habits of Grace, and in it, he, he, it's really a, kind of an overview of the disciplines, and he's talking about um, the voice of God, the ear of God, and the body of God. And he's talking about the voice of God being the Word. He's talking about the ear of God being prayer. He's talking about the body of God being church. And what he's saying, he is calling those things means of grace. And he's saying for you to really get to the place that you need to be as a disciple of Jesus Christ and experience the growth and sanctification that God wants you to have, then you've got to put yourself in the pathway of these means of grace. You've got to be... You've got to be engaged with, exposed to the Word of God, the voice of God. You've got to engage God in prayer, and you've got to be a part of a local assembly of believers that we know to be the church. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Exercise yourself toward godliness. If you said, man, I want a fit body, but you never picked up a weight or exercise, you're not going to get it. It's just, it's just a fact of the matter, isn't it? Somebody will say, what, what exercise and diet plan works? All of them, if you'll do them. Amen? You've got to put yourself in a position to grow. John 17, 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Sanctify them with your truth. Thy word is truth. So, if God's word sanctifies you, then you better make sure you're getting exposed to it every single day. The reason so many aren't growing is because they're really not doing anything to grow. Yes, uh, sanctification is a work of grace, but we put ourselves in the paths of grace so that God can work in our life. You've got to bury yourself in the local church and personal devotion. You've got to exalt some things as priority and make everything else secondary. We start talking about things like this. A lot of times in the church, here comes the excuses, right? You know, I just don't have the time. I'm involved in this or that. My dog has fleas. I mean, we just come up with all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. If you want to grow, you've got to lay aside some things. There, there has to be some intentional neglect to really become the disciple that God wants you to become. You've got to neglect those things that are secondary and make priority those things that are primary. You've, you've got to get rid of those things that are not integral to your discipleship or are or, or, or hindrance to your discipleship. So I, kind of bring, I come back to this question. Do you want to be around people who give you joy and do you want to be that kind of person for other people? 
then get involved in ministry in the advancement of the gospel and start growing as a Christian. You say, is it kind of that simple? Yeah, it, most of what is in here is that simple. Here's a real novel thought. Read it. Find you a command of God or a principle to live and go out and do it. I read in this book that I was telling you about that I'm doing right now, this statement this week, and I'll have to paraphrase. I don't think I can get it exactly the way he said it, but he was talking about scripture memory, and, and he's certainly a proponent. But he was saying, if you just do writ memorization where you just find some you know, random verse and you just commit it to memory, his, he said, well, you know, there's, no, there's no, nothing wrong with that. I wasn't trying to devalue that, but, but here was a statement. He said, you can try to learn it by heart or you can take it to heart. And his suggestion, of course, was to do both. Find a verse of scripture that grips your soul in your devotion and commit that scripture to memory. So you do that. What's the old hymn say? The only way to be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey, right? So do that. And, and you'll be a part of a body of Christ that has joy. You'll bring joy to other people. They'll bring joy to you as we all lock arms together to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow. What does this mean for you right now in this season of your life? How does it find you tonight? Have you placed yourself in a position for God to really do something radical and transforming in your life. I've got high hopes for you. I hope you have high hopes for me because we can be better because Jesus makes us better as we become more like him. But it, there may be some real tough decisions that need to be made. You've got to look at your life. The, the, the standard almost catch-all excuse for everything in this world that we're here to I just don't have time. I mean, I know sometimes that's legitimate. Life is busy. But I will say this, if you're too busy to partner with God in your sanctification, you are entirely too busy. Entirely too busy. What kind of decisions do you need to make tonight? Then, if there's someone here never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior tonight would be a great night to just trust in Him as Lord and Savior of your life I'm going to be waiting down front for you if that's what you need to do just come let me know Pastor I, I want Christ as my Savior my Lord tonight I'm willing to repent of my sin I'll turn to Him in faith just like John 1 12 Jesus said to as many as received Him to them He gave the right to be called the sons of God so you'll receive him tonight he'll save you that's the promise of Romans 10 whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved I'm going to just voice a quick word of prayer over us we're going to stand after that we'll be singing and you can come Father thank you for the relevance of your word it's never at a season it's never at a date it never expires it's fresh it's you, it's vibrant and it speaks to us it's living and powerful and sharper 
that any two-edged sword. And sometimes that cuts things, but it's a necessary one. Lord, accomplish your next step of sanctification in our lives and save anybody that needs to be saved in Jesus' name. Stand to your feet. We're going to sing. You come. Thanks for listening to the Easton Ollie Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to go to our website, eastonolly.church, to find more messages like you just heard and to find out how to be more involved at Easton Ollie. If at any point during this message you made a decision to follow Jesus or you would just like more information about Easton Ollie, email info at eastonolly.church. God bless and have a great week.